0: Hello and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know. This is a podcast about the classical education world and all the stuff you should know about it. This is definitely a ripoff of one of my favorite podcasts, uh, Catholic Stuff You Should Know. And yeah, so we just stole their name. And today, uh, my name is Graham Donaldson. And with me, we have A.J. Hannenberg. And A.J., you have something that you seem excited about. Yeah. So
1: the problem with Homer's literature is that it's pretty inaccessible to any of us today. The average average person. Ninth grader. Right. Or the average adult. I tried to read it after college and I hated it because there's a wealth of, of mythological background that you really need to have before you can even jump into the book. Because the book really does start in the middle of the story. So if you don't have that... None of it makes a lot of sense at all. And you really can't get what is good from the Iliad. So I encourage you, anybody out there, please don't jump into the Iliad just willy-nilly without listening to either this podcast or having someone to
0: walk you through it. Because you just, you're just you just going to miss it. Now, does Homer backfill all this stuff later on in the book? Like, does this no. stuff come back in like, book 10, here's the background stuff you need to know?
1: He assumes that you know all of this and he never fills it in. There's even stories between the Iliad and the Odyssey that don't really get filled in because he assumes you know it. And it's because it was it was cultural currency. It's the same thing as knowing that Abraham Lincoln was a president, right? That's and, and helped to abolish slavery. That's something that we know because it's part of our cultural heritage. No one has to be reminded that that's who Abraham Lincoln was. In the same way, Homer didn't need to remind them of the myths that happened before the Iliad, right? It was just stuff everybody knew. Everybody knew these stories. Okay, so what do I need to know? So, the story that culminates in the Iliad really begins with two people, the Trojans and the Greeks. Uh, and it begins with the gods, right? With Zeus. So Zeus is, I'm not sure there's a delicate way to put this, notoriously horny, right? <laughs> he, he loves ladies, he loves women, and he cheats on his wife a lot, even though she's the goddess of marriage, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But he once. uh fell in love with a nymph named Thetis. Thetis... With the ankles? Yeah, Thetis with the lovely ankles, which we referenced in a previous podcast. So Thetis was gorgeous. Not only were her ankles lovely, but the rest of her was lovely too. The problem was that there was a legend about her that any man that would father a son with her, the son would end up being greater than the father, right? Which is an excellent thing for any decent father, right, to think that your son is going to grow up to be more of a man than you are. In Greece, it was actually expected. Any son was supposed to grow up to be greater than his dad. Mm-hmm. But for Zeus, that presents a problem, right? If there's a god greater than Zeus, Zeus loses his kingdom, right? As the king, you don't necessarily want that, especially if you're going to live forever. So, and he knew that he, about himself that he was a notoriously horny guy. And he couldn't resist Thetis forever. But didn't Zeus do
0: that with his father?
1: Yeah, he did. And he was afraid of the same thing happening to him. It All makes right. sense. Makes sense. So he he knew that Thetis was a problem. He couldn't resist her forever unless she was taken by some other guy. So he went down to a mortal, Peleus. And he said, Peleus, look, I need your help. There's this girl. She's super hot. I can't really resist her. And I can't have her either. So you need to take her. And you need to make her your wife. And so through some pretty shady shenanigans, they trap her and... Force her to marry this mortal. So Thetis is marrying the mortal Peleus. And she's not super happy about it, but that's what's happening. Uh, Zeus is fairly
0: pleased. No, right? she she's a god or, or some sort of demigod?
1: She's a, she's a demigod. She's a daughter of the old man of the sea, if I remember correctly. So she's just one of the sea nymphs. Gotcha. All right, but she is immortal, right? She, she lives forever. What is a nymph will be a, a future podcast. A uh, future podcast. So all the gods are invited to this wedding, right? Everyone is coming. It's this big to-do. She's marrying a mortal. Everyone wants to be there, but there's one god they don't invite, the goddess Eris. And Eris is the goddess of strife. She's not the kind of person you want at a party. She's like the friend that always comes and... Makes the party about her. Makes the party about her or about the problems in between. Oh, like, gosh. Jeff, didn't you just break up with Cassandra? Why are you... Like, that That kind of You do not friend. invite the goddess of strife to your wedding. Yeah, and the goddess of strife was understandably angry about this. She was, she's angry about everything, though. The goddess of strife. Yeah. So she, she didn't get invited, and that kind of rubs her the wrong way. So she goes and gets this golden apple and writes on it the Greek, Greek word kalisti. And if my pronunciation in Greek is bad and you out there know it. It's probably kaliste. kaliste it's an I at the end, right? Oh, kalisti. Kalisti, maybe. Sure. Anyway. An iota. She writes Calliste, and it means for the fairest, and she hucks this golden apple into a party filled with vain goddesses who instantly claim the apple for their own, the three most important ones being Hera, Athena, and Aphrodite. And those three, bickering about the apple, are ruining the wedding, and it's awful. So they go to Zeus, and they say, Zeus, you have to judge between us. And Zeus is a very wise... God And he says, no way, no way. (laughs) Am I doing that? Not a chance in Hades. I will not judge this thing. You got to pick somebody else. And so he sends them to a mortal. And that's where we need to go talk about the Trojans for a little bit. So that's what
0: mortals are where like all the gods dump their problems. Oh,
1: absolutely. Yeah,
0: it's easy. They'll die.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, All right. So we need to move from the gods. So hang on to that wedding moment in your mind. And we need to move to the Trojans. The Trojan city is beautiful. It's large. It's behind these giant walls known as the Skian Gates. They're huge. They're a gazillion feet high. No army can reach it. The city's called Troy. Troy. So the Trojans live in Troy. They're famous for horses. And they're very wealthy because they're a trading gateway to the east, right? So you park your boat, you unload your stuff, you go through Troy and go to the east. So they get a little piece of that action that comes through with all the trading. And we think this city, by the way, actually exists for a long time, they didn't think it was a real place. And then in a dig at a place called Hiserlik, they found a burned city that is in kind of the right place and kind of the right shape and may have been Troy. So maybe a real place, uh, but they don't know for sure. The king of the Trojans is named Priam. And he has a wife named Hecuba, and they have a gabillion kids. Uh, he actually has 50 sons and then add on to that a bunch of daughters. Oh, most? Yeah, he has a lot of kids. Poor Hecuba. Yeah, that poor woman. I actually don't know how that's entirely possible, but. Do the math. I'll do the math on that one. Yeah, who am I to question? Anyway, uh, he has a couple of notable children. The first is Hector, and Hector is the prince of the city. He is beautiful. He is, he is the heir to the throne. He has a gorgeous wife named Andromache, a really fun name, and a son named, named Astyanax that everyone calls the lord of the city. As okay. a baby, they call him Astyanax, lord of the city.
0: Now, would you say that Hector
1: had a well-balanced soul? How, how would I know? I don't know. If he's so if Oh, he's are we so hearkening great? back to the... Well, okay. So, yeah, I'd say he does. He's a little too much given to honor. Hmm. Uh, that, if, that, if there is a flaw to Hector, that is his flaw. Now, there's another brother named Paris... Paris is the antithesis of Hector, where Hector wants to launch himself into battle for the glory of his city. Paris wants to look at himself in a mirror and make sure that he looks good when he's in battle, not necessarily winning, you know, but he's there and he looks good and that's what's important. Now, before he was born, Hecuba, the queen of Troy, had a dream that she gave birth to a firebrand or a torch that burned her city to the ground. Now, dreams carry a lot of weight in the Greek world. And so when she woke up, she said, this baby is going to be the death of us all. So I need to figure out something to do with him. So we got to kill him. So she goes to her husband, Priam. which baby is this? This Paris? Paris, yeah. Before she had Paris. And she goes to Priam and she says, look, you got to kill this kid. He's going to ruin us all. And Priam really tried. He took the kid, but he couldn't do it. And so he went to one of his huntsmen and he said, huntsman, you got to kill this kid. Now, was he a gorgeous baby just as he was a gorgeous man? I don't think any baby has ever been gorgeous. That's my own personal opinion. Babies are not gorgeous. Uh, So the huntsman takes this kid and he takes it into the forest and he's supposed to kill it and bring back the tongue as evidence that he did it. The baby's just a, a baby. The huntsman can't bring himself to do it. So he exposes the baby on the hillside and assumes that nature will do the job and takes a dog tongue in back in place. Now, I don't know... I don't know about you, but I feel like I'd be able to tell the difference between a dog tongue and a baby tongue. That's true. Unless
0: it's like a dried dog tongue.
1: We're getting a little macabre for a
0: (laughs) a radio show. This is a little, uh, yeah, I I would think, in my mind, maybe like Priam is just happy to say, yep, cool. Yeah, dead baby. Okay, yeah. Even though maybe there's a seed of doubt in the back of his mind when he sees the dog tongue.
1: Yeah. Who knows? We don't. Anyway, he says, great. And... And Paris is left on the hillside to grow. And Paris grows to be a strapping, beautiful young man. Everyone that meets him is a fan of him. He's good at sports. He looks good. He's good at being a shepherd because, you know, he doesn't necessarily know he's a prince So does the guy raise
0: him? The guy who exposed him on the hillside? No, I I think a shepherd finds him and raises him. So does that guy feature in the story at all anymore? Not really.
1: Uh, Paris does, though, have a hobby of fighting some prize bulls against everyone else's prize bulls. And he was got so successful at this bullfighting gig that he said, I will give a golden crown to anyone who can bring a bull that will beat my champion. Now, Ares caught wind of this, Ares the god, and came down in the form of a bull. The god and, of war. Yeah, the god of war. And of course, god what? of war is going to stomp on any mortal normal bull. Wait, what was the god of discord? Ares.
0: Ares, different,
1: different. Ares, god, god of war. Gotcha. Ares, goddess of strife. So Ares comes down, stomps his bull, and most mortal men would renege
0: on their offer a golden crown's a lot of gold a lot of gold but paris but you feel like if a god comes in and and, and takes your challenge i would feel cheated i would feel like yeah well, like of it's course not a fair. god's going to do it. it's not fair
1: but paris true to his word rewards the crown to ares and this gains him not only a reputation for being a beautiful guy who's good at sports but being a good judge and that's what's important here. Mm. Uh-oh. So we have Paris, the gorgeous prince of Troy, who is also a good judge. Now, hearken back to the wedding. Zeus has just said that he will not judge the, between the three goddesses who have claimed the golden apple. And really, it's less about the gold and the apple and more about who's the prettiest. So he says, we're going to send you to a mortal. So he has Hermes escort them all to the mountainside where Paris is hanging out. And all three of these goddesses offer themselves and say, hey, you have to pick which one of us is the prettiest, which is a tough spot for any mortal man to be in. Three goddesses. This is known as the Judgment of Paris. And this is reproduced, by the way, in art through the centuries. There are carvings of it. There are paintings of it. There are modern paintings of it. It's all over the place because you have one opportunity to draw really unique human characters. You get to do all three goddesses and Hermes and a mountainside and a gorgeous dude. In a moment of high suspense. And beautiful pastoral shepherd nature. Exactly. It's it's all there. Anything a painter wants, right? It's it's all at this, this moment. And it's a big moment. So he can't do it. He looks from goddess to goddess to goddess and says, you guys are all so pretty. How can I pick? So one by one, they pull him aside and they offer him a bribe. Hera offers him dominion over Europe and Asia. It's a, it's a big area. It's pretty sweet. Yeah. Athena offers him wisdom, wisdom, uh, battle prowess, and the abilities of a warrior. Right? Also
0: somewhat sweet.
1: Yeah, so he, he can be wise, he can be good at battle. Eventually, he might win himself Europe and Asia, so there it makes are, sense. Yeah, that makes a good point. Aphrodite, the goddess of love, says, I will give you the love of the hottest woman on the planet. Now, Paris, despite being beautiful, is not necessarily the brightest guy on the in the world, and he doesn't realize that if you're the king over Europe and Asia, you can probably have any woman you want. That's right. But being a hot-blooded male, he says, the hot one. I want the hot one.
0: But I thought he was supposed to be good at, at judging.
1: No, no, no. He's an honest judge. Oh. But not necessarily <laughs> a good judge. So he he takes the hot girl and uh, and so at he, that moment. So he chose Aphrodite. He chose Aphrodite. At that moment, Aphrodite becomes a fan of the Trojans forever. She loves them and as you would expect, Hera and Athena hate the Trojans with a deep burning fervor that will never subside because they've he been, said they've been scorned. That they weren't pretty. They weren't pretty, dang. Yeah. That's that's so that's a bummer. He was in a tough spot. Hecuba is right. All right, so we have we've talked about two groups of people: the gods, the Trojans, and now we gotta talk about the Greeks. The Greeks at this point were sort of a loose conglomeration of islands, right? Okay. They were sort of all over the place. Everyone had its king. There were great kings and small kings. It kind of depended on how many people you ruled. And they weren't really connected. There was one woman named Helen that was really, really pretty. And when she was born, all of these various kings and warriors courted her hand. Everybody wanted to marry her. But the dad was afraid to pick one for fear that all of the rest of them would kill him when he picked a single one, right? Do away with the dad. Everyone has the right... You know, we could got another shot at the lady. These things happen. So to solve this problem, they all swore, right, shook hands and swore a vow of fealty that whoever should be chosen, the rest of them would protect the marriage, right? So Mm. if anyone decided to rebel or try to kill the dad, all the rest of them were obligated to make sure that the marriage stayed. And really, they all swore to this because they all thought they had a shot at being the one that got to marry Now, wouldn't
0: that be dissolved after the marriage happened? Like, as soon as the marriage happened, you would think— They would. Why would they continue to protect the marriage after the marriage?
1: It was a vow to protect the marriage for for its entirety, right? So that they didn't have war between the various islands trying to go and capture her and capture her back. She was kidnapped before she was even 14, like six times. She was so beautiful. For Helen, it was a curse more than a gift. All right, so she ends up marrying this guy named Menelaus, one of the greater Greek kings. And he is the king of Sparta. And this isn't the Sparta you're thinking of full of... Militant, shirtless dudes kicking shirtless people shirtless guys down holes. yeah, kicking people down holes it's 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 an early Sparta, and none of that has happened yet, right They're not that kind of militant civilization, so she's married to Menelaus, king of Sparta, and his brother is Agamemnon, and he's another king, king of Mycenae, and he's the greatest king of them all, so Helen is already married to menelaus to Menelaus with red hair with red hair, and Helen is fair everything, fair skin. And Paris has been promised her hand in marriage. Uh-oh. So, What's Aphrodite going to do? What essentially happens is Paris visits and hangs out at Menelaus's house and then decides to abscond with the wife. And this goes against something foundational in Greek culture, and that's the hospitality code, right? If you have been on a long journey and journeying wasn't like a four-hour plane ride, it was like a two-month sailing, hiking, horses, eating in the wilderness endeavor, when you finally arrived, what do you want out of... Me as a host. A bath. A bath. Some food. Some food. And to be entertained. To be entertained. But do you really want entertainment right after No. The, so, I want a bath and food and sleep. And sleep. So if someone came to your door, you'd say, here's here's some food, here's a bath, here's some sleep. And then you'd wake up the next morning and I would entertain you. And then I would send you on your way with a gift. So awesome. that when you returned home, you would not only have been well-fed and entertained, but you would be a little more wealthy than when you left. You got to do Traveling that now. If
0: I come to your house, that's what I want now. Yeah,
1: I try. Uh... So instead of being... And, and to trample on this hospitality is a huge faux pas. It's punishable by some of the worst. It's, it's all awful. You just don't do it because it's the foundation of their commerce. So he tramples on it. Paris absconds with Helen and takes her to Troy. So stealing the host's wife was a faux pas of the hospitality code. Surprisingly, yeah. surprisingly there yes. There you go. Right. So he steals Helen and off he takes her to Troy. And now does Helen love Paris? Uh, it's implied that she thinks he's cute. Okay. It's weird. They have a complicated relationship because at, at moments she says, you're the worst, most cowardly man alive. And then he says, oh girl, don't talk me that way. You want to make out? And she's like, yeah. And then they go make out. It's, it's very complicated. She does not seem to be a woman of standards. That's too bad. Yeah. Anyway, so Men- Menelaus goes to his brother Agamemnon and says, my wife has been stolen My honor has been besmirched. In fact, he intends on killing Helen when he finds her because she ran away with this young twerp from Troy. And they call in that oath that all of the other warriors had sworn Mm. to protect the fealty of this marriage. And none of them want to go, by the way. Half of them pretend to be crazy. One of them pretends to be a woman. None of them want to go to war, but eventually they all get rounded up And sent to Troy. This is the Trojan War. This is the Trojan War. Helen has the face that launched a thousand ships. In fact, facetiously now, one Helen unit is how they gauge beauty. And so, one Helen is equal to a face that will launch launch a thousand ships. I think I'm point zero five Helen's. Maybe I got I
0: got like five ships. You launch fifty ships. I'm not not good at math. A face that launches fifty ships.
1: Yeah, that's maybe over over selling twenty five canoes. (laughs) 0.001 <laughs> 0.001 maybe, like maybe a ship. Anyway, so they all show up, they get on the shore and no one can breach the gates and they fight for nine years on the beaches of Troy oh, and it's horrible and there's lice and it's hot and it's sandy all the time and that's kind of where we end up. They've so been that's on the where shore. the books begin. That's where the book begins and they have been raiding nearby towns in order to supplement their supplies, Right. Troy is really well guarded. Some of these other towns aren't. So they go and they raid and they take women and they take stuff. And that's kind of where we begin. All of the men have been dying and they want to figure out why if they made a god mad, then maybe that's the deal. And so they're in the ninth ninth or tenth year of war. And that's where we jump in. So all of this is just backstory. And the story begins with them holding a council to find out why some of their men have
0: been dying from disease. So why does Poseidon hate um, the Greeks so much? Does that have anything to do with... Poseidon
1: actually, at this point, does not hate the Greeks. Oh, he's just... Poseidon hates the Greeks only later when Athena gets grumbly about some stuff that one of the guys did. That's that's a thing for another podcast. Thing for another podcast. Yeah. So... Well, now obvi- that we're
0: talking about things... Oh, sorry, Well, I was gonna going to say,
1: Hera and Athena, obviously on the side of the Greeks. Mm-hmm. Aphrodite on the side of the Trojans. So not only was the known world at this moment split and sundered by war, but the gods were as well. So it is the war to end all wars because the gods have taken sides and will sides as the war continues.
0: And it's and it's all because Zeus has a, his uh, immortal problem of, of uh, liking, the ladies, liking the ladies a little too much. Liking the ladies a little too much.
1: In fact, me. a good chunk of Greek mythology is based upon his, his problem of liking the ladies a little
0: too much. Zeus. Yep. Cool. Well, now I feel like... Uh, Jumping into the books, I I'm gonna know what's happening a little uh, faster, a little bit more. So how do we get that stuff? If if you said it, it's not like they give it to us in book ten after the uh, part way through the story, how do you know that this is like? Is there a is there a, a a preface that Homer wrote down? Is it all just oral tradition? It's it's
1: mostly oral tradition. These would have been stories that you heard in your cradle, uh, stories that you grew up with, stories that you thought about. I mean, a lot of these were moral example stories, things you should and shouldn't do. Um, and just really good stories to tell around a campfire. So this is just stuff you knew, and the reason we know it is because it's written down in plays, it's written down in treatises, There's there are other supplemental materials that happen before the war that you can read. Ovid has some of the stuff, like the day that they land on the beach and Achilles kills a son of Poseidon. Oh, that'll do it. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, Poseidon gets a little grumpy, but really it's Psychnus' fault. Achilles has to Beat him to death. It's, cool, it's
0: a big deal. Awesome. Well, thanks, AJ. Yeah, I've, I've, this is edifying. This and uh, so I guess we'll sign off there. Yeah, I think that's good for today. Cool. So this is classical stuff you should know with AJ and Graham, the windiest windbags of them all. That's not. <laughs> gonna, that's not good. <laughs> I'm
1: sure it is.